Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the only podcast dedicated to the one, the only, Dolph Lundgren. And today we're taking a look at the 1991 buddy cop film Showdown in Little Tokyo. This was the seventh movie in Lundgren's filmography, which finally allowed him to put his martial arts skills on display. In this action comedy, Lundgren portrays Sergeant Chris Kenner, a no-nonsense detective who teams up with the young Brandon Lee as they attempt to stop the Yakuza from moving in and taking over Los Angeles. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with me today is not just one, but two regulars to the show, Chris Prentice and Jeremy Damasu. Chris, how's it going, man? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, Sean. I'm excited to be on uh, this installment of the show. Uh, inci- excited to be talking to you and Jeremy, and uh, I think we're going to have a, a fun one this time. Jeremy, how's it going, buddy? Great, thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be back and to have, uh, you know, to be on this podcast special with the <laughs> two of you, and, you know, uh, we're going to talk about a fun one showdown in Little Tokyo that was shot some, I think, 27 years ago. Wow. wow. Well, wow. you know, it, 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 it was <laughs> it was inevitable that an episode was going to be in the works where, you know, all three of us could finally get together to dissect and review one of Lundgren's films. And I honestly could not think of a better film for us to finally do this with. Because let's face it, Showdown in Little Tokyo is Lundgren in his absolute prime. Okay? He's in his absolute prime. The, the film is, you know, just the, the best example I can think of of 90s gratuitous testosterone and the film is incredibly lean i mean it clocks in at barely 75 minutes so th- th- this one is perfect for for us to get together on no i, I agree uh, absolutely i mean it's like you, you mentioned the running time and you know it's one of the things that always jumps out to me about this movie is there, there's no padding there's no there, there's no extraneous uh, dialogue it's uh, it's basically action scene, action scene, action scene, sex scene, action scene, action scene, and uh, with with some some awfully uh, funny banter between uh, Dolph and Brandon Lee in between. So to me, you know, a lot of people kind of knock it for its running time, but to me, a it works at that running time, so that there was really no need for it to be any longer. Even though I'm sure they they probably cut cut some things out um, that that may have uh, helped the film. But to me, it's just an absolute ball for for 78 minutes. Oh, most definitely. I mean, this this is this is I mean, this came out, you know, 90, 91 or so. Right. Right around that. Like we talked about last time, that sweet spot of action cinema. Okay, And back then, you know, around that around that period, you know, you had you know, you had tons of buddy cop films. So this definitely hits that mold. But it also hits the mold of just those those 90s, you know, action films, you know, in these 90s action films. They are, you know, testosterone heavy. They are, let's face it, pretty misogynistic. Um, but, you know, at the time it works. No way could a movie like this be made nowadays. You know, that I think that's what makes this one a classic. No, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, you mentioned the, the misogyny. And look, it's it's in the film. There's there's no way around it. I mean, there's some things that I think, you know, people who who may not have grown up with the movie, if they were to watch it today, they would probably gasp. Uh, certainly the, the, the scenes of, uh, of, uh, the sushi being eaten in the club, uh, that kind of jumps out at me. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some, some things in here that it's, it's definitely not the most politically correct movie, 
But again, that was the era. This was the early 90s, and the, the, very few action movies were all that politically correct back then. Um, but but like, oh, it no. has its, its own its own swagger and its own style. And uh, it, I mean, I don't think anybody can deny that it's just uh, it's 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 hilarious. But there's also some phenomenal action, and and that's that's what you wanted in in those days. In 1991, I think it was kind of a banner year for action films. I mean, just the 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 quantity that was going on in terms of, of the genre was unparalleled. And to me, this is one of the ones that has uh, has aged the best. Yeah, and before we get into this, I'm just curious. Um... I'll start with you, Jeremy. What is what was your exposure, your first exposure to the film? And then, uh, Chris, you can uh, you can tell us yours. Well, uh, actually, I had been waiting for the film a long time because I remember when the you know when the project was announced. Um, it was when Dolph had uh, done cover up and uh, it was being released, and uh, even before that. Uh, I remember he was saying he was about to shoot uh, uh, an action comedy with the son of Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee, and uh, that was going to have lots of martial arts. And and uh, uh, I had seen uh, a short interview as well in the magazine where you know uh, the journalist had been visiting the set, and uh, but the, the unfortunately. The movie didn't come out uh, in Europe uh, until 1992, uh, right before Universal Soldier. And uh, uh, in Europe and, and Japan, um, the film came out directly to video. And uh, it had been the same, you know, Warner Brothers, who was the studio behind it, had done the same with uh, Steven Seagal's Out for Justice. It was uh, a DTV over here, and so I had to wait quite a, you know, more than a year to actually see it, and I must say I was pretty excited about the film because I've always been uh, into karate and martial arts, and the idea of having Dolph Rundgren playing a sort of a, you know, 20th century modern samurai, you know, a white guy who thinks he's a samurai, and with the, the reverse thing, of having Brandon Lee as his partner, who's just a, you know, American, uh, you know, plain American, you know, loving uh, MTV and the beach and, and stuff like that was, uh, I thought it was a great concept. And uh, I must say at the time, I was disappointed when I first saw it, so I had to rent a VHS. And um, uh, I can now say that all the, the video releases, from the VHS to the DVDs, um, they were quite badly transferred at the time because the the you know the the brightness was so uh, enhanced that it doesn't reflect the um, the actual film, and it looked to me and also because of its its short time, um, I thought at the time that it looked too much like a like a TV show or something, or, or a TV movie. And thankfully, we have a great uh, Blu-ray release now that uh, it, it, there's no comparison when, when you watch the film how uh, great it looks and, and how, you know, for instance, I remember on the, the DVD, even on the, the DVD, their faces were so white, 
you know, and tail, uh, which doesn't show on the on the Blu-ray, you know, which really uh, exposes you to a near theatrical experience of the film. Wow, interesting, interesting. Hey, Chris, how about you, man? When did you first see it? Um, yeah, this was was another one that I, I did not see in the theater. I do remember when it came out, but I mean, this one this one came and went very quick in the U.S. Uh, in terms of the the theatrical release. Um, I, I believe it was pretty late in the summer in 91 and it, it wasn't a, a huge release uh, in, in terms of the amount of theaters compared to a lot of the other you know big action films that summer and so it came and went pretty quick and uh, but I was able to see it when it finally came out on video which I'm, I'm, I'm I believe was you know probably late in the winter of, of uh, 92 so I'm, I'm thinking probably somewhere around February maybe March of 92 was when I finally was able to see it and yeah, I mean, right away. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I was at that age where, where I mean, you know, all the all the type of uh, the violence and mayhem that uh, goes on in the movie was was right up my alley. And you know, this was kind of the first movie of Dolph's that that I had seen after the Punisher. And you know, and the Punisher was what kind of cemented me as as a big fan of the guy. And and Showdown Little Tokyo just kind of kept it rolling. I mean, it was it was exactly what I would have wanted from a movie in those days. And quite frankly, it's kind of what I want in these kind of movies these days. Uh, we just don't get as many of them. Um, but yeah, it was it was an absolute blast back then. And yeah, and I'm absolutely in agreement with uh, Jeremy regarding the uh, the the future or the later home video releases, at least the ones that that we got here in the states, uh, the VHS, and then the the pretty horrid uh, DVD that first came out were definitely uh, really lacking in, in substance. And so I'm, I'm pretty thankful that Warner Brothers uh, finally finally did right by the movie with their Blu-ray release uh, a couple years ago. You know, it would be nice if it maybe it had a, a, some bonus features, but hey, I'm, I'm just happy that, that they, they finally uh, atoned for the, uh, the horrendous uh, DVD release. Well, and I'm glad that um, I, I am. I'm of course glad that Warner Brothers uh, finally finally boned up and, uh, and and did the proper Blu-ray release. I will admit, um, I have not gotten it yet, uh, unfortunately, just because it doesn't have um, it doesn't have any special features to really make me, uh, in my opinion at least, make me justify and warrant um, you know putting the money forth toward it. I still have that that pitiful uh, <laughs> the the pitiful. <laughs> Uh, DVD release that was, um, that, you know, that has the full frame version and everything. Um, it's not great. Um, how I justify it though, because, you know, I, 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 I watched it on a, on a repeat for, for the recording of this episode in preparation. And how I justify owning that particular release is it just, it provides the nostalgia and harkens back to the, the VHS transfer from when I first saw it, um, when I was a little kid as well. So, that's kind of how I look upon it. So I would say that uh, when you finally get the Blu-ray, you will totally re rediscover the film. You know, okay. I, and you can you can still watch the VHS or the DVDs. There's no harm about it. You know, we're all nostalgic of the the VHS era. You know, the full screen versions and things like that. You know, uh, for instance, there's a certain feeling to take a. a, a a tape out of its box and put it in a VCR, you know, because it's it's a bigger object and everything, and it, it really feels like you have a, you know, a film reel in some way. Um, so uh, I I don't blame you. <laughs> 
Yeah, no. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those films, I will admit, you know, it, it's one of those movies that um, I, I saw it. I saw it at a pretty young age. Um, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you guys, but I saw it. I saw it at a pretty young age. And even even as a little kid, when I first saw it, it was um, I, it, it was definitely up there with with one of Lundgren's uh, one of my favorite films of his because um, the character that he plays is just such a badass. Um, but I will admit it was one of those films that creeped me out slightly because let's face it, the character of Yoshida played by Carrie Hiro, I'm going to say his name wrong, but Carrie Hiro, Hiroyuki Tagawa, um, that villain always scared the shit out of me as a little kid, rightfully so. And so the, the film always kind of creeped me out, um, you know, in, in, in many, in many instances, but I was able to definitely appreciate and see the, uh, the humor within it at a young age. So that kind of offset the, uh, the creepy factor. Yeah, there, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, Kerry Tagawa, I, I just, I just go with Kerry Tagawa. I think that's how he mostly goes by, by it. By now, it, I mean, he's he's a scary guy in this movie. I mean, he's just pure evil. Uh, I mean, it's completely one note. There's no, there's not one ounce of a redeeming quality within him. And you know, that's what these movies need. They need just these pure evil villains. Um, and he was up to the task, and I mean, he, I think he's fantastic in the movie. I mean, he has some some, in, some incredible scenes of of just being a god awful human being, and so it, it makes uh, it, it makes us the viewers want to see uh, Dolph and Brandon Lee take him down, and uh, and so look, it's it's very simple, and uh, it's it, it succeeds on that level. It, it, it's not going for a lot of uh, of subtext or a lot of depth with regards to the the heroes and villains um but to me it, it just absolutely works and and I'm with you that Kerry Sagawa is a pretty scary guy in this movie um but it's to the film's benefit and it's one of the reasons that I think the the film uh, continues to be uh to be uh, I don't know if worshiped is the right word but appreciated to this day oh most definitely most definitely I think and and before we get fully into the film um the other thing that uh, we, that we need, do need to take a look at is this was the film that Lundgren followed right after cover up and you know if you remember a couple episodes back um Lundgren had tried his hand I wouldn't call cover up a, a full on drama, but cover up is a film where um, you could see that he was attempting something new. It is a much more serious and moody piece, and the film really didn't latch, and you know really didn't uh, really didn't click. It was released direct to video here in the U.S., um, and so I got I gotta wonder. Maybe Jeremy can shed light on this, but I gotta wonder if by Lundgren taking on the role in Showdown, if maybe he was realizing okay. I'm an action guy. Let's go back to the standard action. Let's go back to what um to, to what I to what I know that I can definitely do and excel at. And boy oh boy, he he does definitely excel at it. But I gotta wonder if this was a conscious decision on behalf of Lundgren to where, yeah, you know, he he had attempted something new, something uh, that branched a little out of the the action wheelhouse. It didn't really stick. So let's go back to kicking ass because that's what that's what he well, that's what he does. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm not sure it was exactly a, a, a fully conscious decision. Uh, the fact is that, y you know, he took on Shodan in Little Tokyo pretty late. Uh, it was just a, a few months before it started shooting. Uh, and cover-up had been done. Um, you know, it was completed. Uh, it was edited and everything. 
um, but it hadn't come out anywhere yet. Uh, and at the time, he was very uh, supportive of the film and, and you know proud of his, of his work um, as an actor who you know didn't have to use a weapon and everything. Um, uh, what happened was he had he had a few other projects at the time uh, that were either you know on standby like uh, Universal Soldier or there was another one that was uh, announced uh, which was um, you know it was a, a war drama uh, by a Polish director who made the film Possession uh, Andrzej Zulawski who's pretty famous in Europe and, a, you know, very renowned director, which was, you know, the, the team up of the two of them was very unlikely. And this project, you know, I wish it had been done because it was kind of like um, Apocalypse Now meets Moby Dick meets Men of War. You know, it was set in the 50s during the, the Indochina War. Um, and uh, it was a really great and, you, you know, completely out there uh, project. Um, anyway, that didn't happen because one of the producers was a crook and stuff like that, you know, Hollywood. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they, what happened with Showdown was, I'm going to tell you the, 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 the most genesis behind the project was uh, the director, Mark Lester, who, of course, directed Class of 1984, uh, Firestarter and, of course, uh, Commando a few years prior. Um, he had read in the LA Times a story about um, bodies that had been found, I think, in the LA River or something like that, and they were tattooed Yakuza. Um, and that gave him the idea of um, doing a film about that. And he um, um, he teamed up with a, uh, a new producer who was a big agent in, in Hollywood and had, you know, worked on, for instance, Kickboxer with Van Damme and another project with De Niro. And so they got a couple of writers um, to write a first script. And uh, they were... Actually, there were many writers who worked on, on, on this project, um, you know, one after the other, because it seemed that early on they weren't sure. Uh, there was a back and forth between making it a, a really hardcore thriller, action thriller, like, uh, you know, like Black Rain. Uh, and that was one of the early versions of the screenplay that I have that was written by the guy who did one of the Dirty Harry movies, and it was pretty much the, the same, almost the same story, same concept. There was a few differences, but it, 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 it was more, uh, it, it was more greedy and and you know less tongue in cheek. Uh, and then there were, uh, you know, another handful of writers, you know, doing uh, new drafts, you know, until they. they they shot it, and that happened pretty quickly uh, in, you know, maybe uh, six or eight months. Uh, so the, the, it was developed very quickly, and I know that someone suggested uh, Steven Seagal at some point 
for the for the role and um but ultimately there was it wasn't a, a producer on the film but uh one that they knew uh and, and of course you know what happens sometimes with this is it's kind of like they have lists of uh stars that uh you know they could they could get for the roles and they kind of go you know uh one by one you know with like the you know the 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 biggest name and the the most popular the one they want to go with and uh if if they pass you know they go to the other one and uh, so Dolph was high high up on this list i don't know if if he was the first or, or not but um i know that the co-producer uh you know mark lester was co-producing with uh the other the other guy and uh so the co-producer who i think was probably handling more the um uh, you know uh grounded um uh production production uh issues and uh organization um he didn't know who Dolph was before someone suggested his name and uh but uh they went for him and um and later on they they, they hired Brandon Lee who had done only uh, a couple of movies in in Hong Kong and South Africa um i think the most notable one was legacy of rage which which was done in hong kong by uh, ronnie yu who's a big um chinese director and um so dolph signed up uh for the film uh, cuz someone gave me the exact date of the of the deal that was in september 1990 and they started shooting in january uh 1991 so uh it was only a few months before um before production began well and you you brought up a couple things there um first of all with regard to brandon lee um chris you and i have spoken about brandon lee and his efforts quite a few times i'm gonna go out there and i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and i'm gonna say it um and i know that you know he is he is nowadays um you know known for his his role in the crow but I think Legacy of Rage is one of the most underrated, and it, it's, in my opinion, um, one of Brandon Lee's, e easily his, his best film. Um, he, he only had so many fi films under his belt that he, he did before his untimely death, but Legacy of Rage is that one film that not many people have seen, not many people even really know about. It's pretty much a Hong Kong retelling of The Count of Monte Cristo, but um, Chris, you and I have spoken about it. That, that's an amazing piece. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a huge fan of Legacy of Rage. Uh, you know, that was a movie that you know, that I only first saw maybe about ten years ago, and uh, I was pretty blown away by it. I mean, it's a movie that really it, it kind of tells its story and, and it saves most of its uh, of its carnage for the end. But man, when it comes, it is just Hong Kong action at its finest. And uh, it's it's a movie that I'm, I'm a big fan of, and I'm glad that I was uh, discovered that one because you know for a long time I kind of just went under the assumption that all right he, he Brandon Lee had done this you know horrid movie Laser Mission which I mean let's just not even talk about it but uh, then you know Showdown the movie Rapid that's Fire. in the public domain <laughs> oh yeah I know it's the movie that has probably the most public domain releases aside from maybe Reefer Madness I think Laser Mission is is the number two uh, most most produced versions in the public domain but yeah it's a horrible movie um, so I mean I kind of always was under the assumption that he had these four movies and I and I, I think I you know finally learned that he he had another one that he had done in Hong Kong 
and was was able to watch that, you know, again, like probably about maybe 10 years ago or so was when I first saw it. And yeah, it's great. And I, I love that one. And uh, if, if anybody's listening to this and they think they've seen every Brandon Lee movie, but they haven't seen Legacy of Rage, then do yourself a favor and track it down. No, no. Yeah, most definitely. The other thing that Jeremy mentioned, which I'm so glad that, that he did regarding Steven Seagal, because, yeah, I could the period that this came out and every time I watch it, I think to myself, it could easily be a Steven Seagal movie. I, I, I don't I don't want it to be by any means because, you know, I <laughs> I appreciate and I enjoy Lundgren so much more. Um, but I would put for, for some reason um, this, I feel, falls within the same family. It almost feels it could be in the same universe as the films Hard to Kill, Out for Justice and Marked for Death. I feel that those three Seagal films definitely fall within the pantheon of <laughs> of. Uh, show down a little Tokyo, just in terms of their overall story, the the tone, and just the overall feel of uh, of, of the films. Yeah, and, and there's there's another thing I forgot to mention was, you know, uh, well the film was uh, backed by Warner Brothers, who of course uh, was in in the contract with Steven Seagal, and in Showdown they hired the same composer as the early Steven Seagal films. Uh, David Michael Frank, uh, we, who had done the exact same, you know, uh, same kind of score that he did for Seagal, and also remember that this was the, 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 you know, the height of the martial arts kickboxing movies, you know, with uh, Seagal and Van Damme being, you know, uh, you know, pretty much at the almost at the top of the game. And you know, and uh, increasing popularity, and, and you know, Dolph had always been hesitant to uh, to do pure martial arts movies, and I think this was a, another reason that he did that one was to to try his hand at it, um, and 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 Warner Brothers definitely wanted to have their you know a, a, another um, or even two other martial arts stars in their, you know, under their wing, uh, because every other studio was doing that. You know, uh, it was Paramount who was launching uh, that same year, uh, Jeff Speakman in The Perfect Weapon. And uh, I know Brandon Lee, prior to Showdown, he had already signed for Rapid Fire with Fox. Uh, and, you know, of course, we had the Sasha Mitchell in Kickboxer 2. And, you know, I, I don't remember how many guys there were at the time. Well, and, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned the, uh, the, the score by David Michael Frank because, yeah, this score, I, I read one review the other day that, you know, that, that knocked the film and, you know, kind of, you know, you know, bitched about how the film, um, has this score that is just played constantly. But the one thing that I have to appreciate about it is, you know, how many films can you remember the score that you, after watching the film so many years later, you can remember the, you know, the, the, the overall score and the overall music that is, that is done throughout the film. And granted, for virtually every scene in this film always starts with that same score, but, but I personally have always loved it. It, it's, it's memorable and it definitely, it lets you know that the film that you are watching is not meant to be taken seriously, but it also hits, hits those beats. I mean, you know, it, you know, it falls within the, the whole, 90s action milieu and it also it also kind of goes along with the 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 whole japanese 
Yakuza angle that they are thrown in the film. So yeah, this score by David Michael Frank is is excellent. I'm glad that they front load the film with the score at the very beginning, and it just carries throughout you know all 78 minutes of it all the way to the end. Yeah, I'm with you, uh, you know, 100% on that. You know, you you mentioned that. I mean, a good score is one that that you can remember long after you've seen the movie, and and that's definitely the case for me with this. It, again, it's. Would this score work if it was a, a Meryl Streep drama? No. Would it work if it was a uh, you know a, a Spielberg uh, a epic sci-fi adventure? No, it would not. But does it work when it's a Dolph Lundgren, Brandon Lee martial arts uh, buddy flick? Yes, it's it absolutely fits it, and and that's what you want. That's that's what you need. And it, yeah, and, and I'm with you that it, it sort of feels like it's in that same universe as the Seagal movies from that era. Um, you know, and also I think it also fits in with, uh, with perfect weapon, which uh, as Jeremy said, came out the same year. Um, you know, another one that, that featured Kerry Tagawa, not quite as evil, still, still not a great guy, but not quite as evil in that one as he was in, uh, in showdown. But yeah, all those movies, they, they kind of feel like they're of that same universe. Um, so there, there's definitely that connective tissue that, that I've always enjoyed about it. Well, and you know, as, as, as we look at the film, as we move into the film, I would say probably the, the big character in the film, even more so than, than Lundgren's tenor uh, character or, you know, Brandon Lee's Johnny Murata detective. You know, I would say the, the biggest character in the film is the, the Yakuza. And one of the things that, um, that I've always appreciated about it is just how the whole idea of the Yakuza and these tattoos, it's a motif that is repeated throughout the entire film that lets you know that, you know, that these are bad dudes and these are, you know, that this is, this is the ultimate threat who our heroes are going to be taken on. And so as we look at the opening title sequence, it's extremely unique, especially for the time. But if you look at it compared to what is done nowadays for opening title sequences, I would still put it out there as, like I said, extremely unique. You know, you have this muscle-bound torso of a Yakuza member. You know, it is, you know, the entire torso is just emblazoned by tattoos. And so for these few minutes of the of the opening titles, it's essentially just this torso flexing. I mean, that's all it is. It's just him flexing, holding a sword. I think in one shot he's he's holding a gun. Um, but again, it it fits right along with the tone of not just nineties action films, but the 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 comic, but also pseudo serious um aspect to the tone, or excuse me, aspect to the film as well. So it fits perfectly and you know, as as a kid, like I said, going back to this when I first saw this when I was younger, it's one of those things that kind of creeped me out. Nowadays I watch it and I just have to laugh because it 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 fits perfectly with just with just the whole nostalgia and the tone. And it's no wonder that the film is a cult classic because especially when you have an opening title sequence of a bodybuilder flexing with tattoos, it's awesome. Combined with the score, I, I couldn't ask for more. Yeah, I, I agree. But it, it's funny because I always I still feel that uh you know with with these titles, uh it's like they want you to know that, you know, it's a Dolph Rundgren movie, so they got a body double that was, you know, muscle-bound like him, and, you know, you, you kind of think, you know, they want you to think it's him, and at the same time, they covered him in, uh, you know, in huge Yakuza tattoos all over his body. So, so it's a, you know, it's, it's a mix of the, of the two. Yeah, most definitely. And the one thing that I, I don't know if you guys picked up on this or not. Um, I finally picked up on it, uh, upon, upon my most recent viewing. 
But this film is, I mean, it's a buddy cop film, but it's also, I mean, this is Dolph's movie. I mean, this is, this is his movie. He is the main character. He, his character is, you know, at, you know, front and center throughout the entire film. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not, Chris or Jeremy, but in, in recent viewings, if you look at the, if you look at the, the opening titles, Lundgren's name is in the largest font compared to all of the other, all of the other actors and all the other production, you know, people who had a hand in the film, but it's Lundgren's name who has the largest size font. So it goes Dolph Lundgren in this big font. Then it goes Brandon Lee, which is in a significantly smaller one. And then we get the silhouette of, you know, the title showdown, a little Tokyo on the dude's chest. But that is just one of the um, small pieces of evidence that I have to wonder if they were putting a lot of, a lot of stock and a lot of effort into, into Lundgren's rising star to make this, you know, um, to make this his movie. I've always said that, you know, Dolph has the, the largest font I've ever seen on a man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was about to say that, you know, definitely Dolph was the star of the film when they made it. And, you know, of course, they were, they were trying to, uh, you know, they, they knew that Brandon had, a, you know, huge charisma. And, you know, was probably going to be a, a star. Uh, but he was unknown in the United States, even though he was, you know, the son of Bruce Lee. But, you know, he, I, I know that uh, his, uh, you know, he, his fee was significantly lower. And, uh, you know, the, the film was built around uh, around Dolph being the, the leading man and, and the star. And it's... Uh, Interesting how Brendan, you know, um, also shoot the scenery in some way and, and you know, uh, was, had enough, uh, presence to, 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 to team up and, and face Dolph, you know, um, uh, and that's, that's also, um, that also worked out for the, for the film and for the best, um, uh, because you, you needed someone, you know, of course, Brandon is, um, you know, smaller and, you know, he's not as big as Dolph and, and, but he doesn't, you know, it's like Kari Tagawa, I was thinking as well, that, uh, he's not huge physically, but he compensated, you know, by, by his, his presence and his acting and his cruelty, you know, which made him even more powerful in a way. No, most definitely. And, you know, going along with the whole idea of this being Lundgren's film, um, you know, as soon as he, as soon, <laughs> as soon as his character comes on screen, um, he, he has a presence. I mean, there was going to be a couple things that I was going to mention about Dolph that I, that I put in my notes on this one. But, um, first of all, when he comes on screen, the outfit that he is wearing is, is hilarious. I mean, only, only someone like Lundgren, let's face it, could pull this off. But when he, when he steps on screen, you know, he, he comes in, he's attempting to foil this illegal underground boxing and gambling den. And the, the Yakuza slowly, you know, that they move in, you know, as soon as he comes in. But as soon as we see Lundgren, his outfit, I mean, he is fulfilling the role of that badass renegade cop cliche that we've seen so many times before but it works he's wearing <laughs> throughout the entire film actually he wears it uh he wears I, I wrote this down a tank top baggy pants and this leather jacket with the uh with the the japanese rising sun on the back it is hilarious <laughs> you know but it, i'll admit it looks so cool on him and, and only someone like lundgren can pull it off 
Yeah, and something you can't really see in the film, but you can definitely spot it in some stills, is that he also added the logo of his uh, Kyokushin Karate School. You know, his style of karate, which is knockdown karate. And that's definitely a touch that Lundgren brought to the to his his jacket. And and I know he's always you know you don't always see it, but uh, he likes to add little touches to his uh, uh you know to his costumes and and uh, um to his characters. Yeah, how amazing is it that as uh, as over the top as his outfit is in the beginning of the movie. It, it actually looks understated compared to his outfit at the end of the movie. Oh my god! Right. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I, I I can't wait to. The, one of the film. One of the things about the film that I'm sorry just does not hold up uh, <laughs> to this day. I, I gotta wonder how it played in 1991. I can't wait to get to it. Yeah, but the outfit that he wears at the end is embarrassing. I'll, <laughs> I'll just put that out there right now. Oh, it's fun, but it's cool at the same time. <laughs> I agree. So. Now I have a I have a theory about Lundgren's character, and before we um before we get to the coffee shop scene, but I, I have a theory about his character that I was going to throw out there uh, at you, and I didn't know Jeremy or Chris if if you if you believe my theory or not, or maybe if you can shed light on it. But Lundgren is a force of freaking nature in this film. I mean, first of all, he is extremely jacked. Um, you know, he he had dropped all that weight when he had done the Punisher. Well, the weight comes back and then some um this is probably the biggest that i have ever seen lundgren on film and and that this is even after you know rocky four and um and when he did when he was he-man would you guys agree were you guys just amazed at you know how much larger in stature he is in this film compared to other other roles well i i um personally i i never i've seen a lot of people stating that and and it's probably true uh, but it, it never occurred to me. Um, and, and of course, you know, you have, uh, shots of him training, um, you know, shirtless and everything. So of course he will, you, you know, make sure that he looks good and everything. I, I, I never, um, it didn't occur to me that he, he was, um, the, the biggest or, or you know, at the, you know, that it was one of his uh, roles where he was the biggest. I, I've always thought it was Masters and Red Scorpion. I think Red Scorpion is definitely out there. Um, but he definitely looks great and, and was in top shape, uh, especially since, you know, he had shot cover-up. It was, uh, yeah, maybe eight, ten months earlier, and he had lost some weights as well for for this one so um he definitely and at the time he was always bringing his uh karate sensei on his shoots and and, and you know was training hardcore in martial arts uh, uh you know whether or not it was a, a role that required to use martial arts well here's my theory about the film and maybe um i know that you have a couple drafts of the of the script jeremy but one thing upon watching it most recently is I have to wonder if maybe in an earlier draft of the script or if maybe this is what they were going for. But is is Lundgren, in fact, an invincible, reincarnated samurai in this film? <laughs> because, like I said, he is a he is a force of nature and he does so many things that a regular human cannot do. And I wrote this down at the beginning of the film when he comes in uh, and, and you know, tries to foil this this gambling den. Um, 
one one of the fighters takes a takes a swing at him, takes a shot at him, and you know it gets his jaw. Doesn't hurt Lundgren at all, but of course, you know the guy starts you know <laughs> starts whining in pain at this shot. Then there are so many other scenes um, when he is saving Minako at uh, at Yoshida's place. He sticks his hand through a door to grab a bad guy and you know pulls him pulls him through. He lifts a car on its side. Um, there are so many shots where he just knocks a guy out with a single punch. Is he in fact this reincarnated samurai? I mean, I, I don't. He rips. Oh, and at the end when he's getting tortured on that electrical stretcher, he just rips his arm off of off of the uh, off the, the the stretcher. Is, right. He's a samurai, and, am I not? I mean, that's what he is. And, he's he's the, reincarnated. There's, there's also. There's also the shot where, you know, um, I don't think you mentioned it at the beginning, uh, at the end of the, the opening sequence where, you know, he, he jumps over the car with, with a, a sidekick, you know, uh, oh. over the, the car of the Yakuza's, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's superhuman. I mean, let's face it, he's superhuman. Yeah. Chris, would but, you agree? Oh, no, I, I'm with you there. I mean, look at the scene where he's... Where him, uh, you know, Brandon and Tia Carrera, they're they're kind of at at Dolph's uh, fortress of solitude out in wherever, uh, in the, and then the uh, the Yakuza come and attack, and those scenes of him just throwing the various martial arts weapons, and you know he's hitting everyone perfectly, uh, you know, without without any trouble at all. I mean, yeah, he's 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 basically a superhero in this film, and uh, even if it's not actually stated that he's a reincarnated samurai, I, I can totally buy into that theory. I've never seen anything about uh, mentioning him being a reincarnated samurai, uh, but the idea was definitely that he thinks he's a samurai, and, and you know, he thinks you know it, it's almost like as if he's crazy, like you know, he believes. As strongly as he, uh, as anything that he's a samurai, so um, you know he would think that he's a reincarnated samurai. And I would have to check. Uh, I know this definitely wasn't in the earliest draft that I have, but I would have to check back uh, in the um, the shooting draft um, how some of these moves and, and you know and powerful things that he does how they were uh, written in the script, but I definitely think that it was enhanced, you know, along the way uh, when they came out with ideas and worked it out with Dolph and, the, you know, the stunt coordinator and the, the fight coordinator. Um, they definitely pushed it to, to the limit. Oh, he is more He-Man in this film than he was when he started as He-Man. I mean, that's one <laughs> yeah. of the things that, that I think is hilarious about it. So if we, okay, so if we progress into the film and we shift to the coffee shop scene. So like you said, Chris, earlier, how the film is just action sequence after action sequence after action sequence. That, that, that is perfect in explaining this because it shifts to a coffee shop scene. Lundgren's Kenner character, he is chilling, having his breakfast, having his morning tea. I don't even think it's, it's coffee. He's drinking. It's tea. And again, every new scene starts with this iconic score. But yeah, he's in this coffee shop. The Yakuza comes in. And they essentially start bullying the this this poor little um, this poor little woman owner into aligning herself with the yakuza because that's their plan. They're planning on taking over Los Angeles, starting with Little Tokyo first. Lundgren steps in and he is able to kick all their ass at once, all the while holding 
this teacup. Hmm. Again, he, he's superhuman. He's a samurai. It, the, the scene is hilarious, but I, I love the way Lundgren plays it because he is intimidating as all hell, just the way he towers over every everybody in this scene. No, it's it's a very it's a very cool scene. It's a great way to kind of set up uh, Dolph and Brandon Lee's partnership because, uh, of course, you know, you have to have <clears throat> Brandon Lee uh, just happen to stroll by on his way there. And, of course, he's seeing his new partner, you know, beat the uh, the ever-loving crap out of all these Yakuza members. Uh, so it's it's a good way to introduce them and kind of immediately put them into a conflict. And so you know that, hey, you know, they're, yeah, they're both cops. They're both on the same side, but they're going to have issues with each other. And I think there's just – it's just a cool fight scene. There's just some cool moves in it, uh, some really sweet kicks. Um, I, I think the one the one part in that scene that, that I always kind of kind of shake my head at is uh, is once Brandon Lee and, and Dolph, they've kind of identified themselves as police and, you know, the, the fighting is coming to an end. The, the Yakuza open fire on the uh, the restaurant and uh, and Dolph basically, you know, he takes cover behind one of the tables and you basically see all these these, you know, uh, machine gun ammunition just, you know, fire into the table. Uh, but, you know, of course, he he comes out of it unscathed, which hey, it's it's a uh, it's a early 90s action film. So, you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But I, whenever I see that, I'm like, I don't know, is that is that table really providing a lot of cover for him there? Again, he's a superhuman samurai. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep going back to this because that's the only reason I could think because just the amount of ammo and machine gun firepower that is shot at him that he is able to not so much dodge, but just avoid and, and walk away from from is amazing. But I have to laugh at that scene as well, especially. Yeah, I shook my head like you did, but I just watch it. This poor little shop owner. Her store is shot shot completely to shit. I mean, it is completely <laughs> destroyed after this to where I wonder maybe she would have been better off just aligning with the with the Yakuza in the first place. She would still have a storefront in the end. It's true. <laughs> yeah, she probably didn't have the money, though. That's the thing. <laughs> well, so, um, but yeah. I love I love the introduction of Brandon Lee. I have to wonder if there was a deleted scene of some kind that introduces his character because it is Lundgren's movie, sure, but it is also a buddy cop film. And just the way his first scene on film is, he's obviously going to this tea shop to find his partner and to introduce himself to his partner. But just considering he is the second lead in the film and his first scene is him just strolling by, you know, in the middle of this mayhem and this action. It is hilarious. It's one of the things that, that just helped make the film this, this laughable cult classic. But I have to wonder, Jeremy, was there, in fact, a deleted scene that introduced him to the audience I, prior? I, I, yeah, I, I think there were, there were, um, I don't think it was that long, but the, the, there was, a. Uh, there were more, there were more shots and, and, you know, and kind of a montage introducing him, um, which I think intercut with, uh, you know, Dolph having his breakfast and everything. And I think, uh, there was also a line, I, I, I don't know, I don't remember who said it. Even the, the, the coffee shop scene, I think, was a bit longer. Um, so we knew, we also knew more about Dolph and even the, the, his relationship with the, the shop owner, you know, because of course it was where he was going every day and she was, you know, a, a figure of the, the community. Um, 
And since you mentioned it, I also have to to say that uh, uh, um, even before that, the the movie was 15 minutes longer uh, before the uh, I mean the whole opening scene. Um, uh, there was a lot more um, background story, and you know y y the the opening scene was you know Dolph wasn't alone; he was with. Uh, you met with his former partner that you later see in the police station uh, just uh, for one second, and, and uh, there were there were a, lo a lot more stuff going on, um, uh, and, and that's that's the thing. The, the the whole film has been recut and trimmed down. Uh, there were also some sequences that were um, moved around. Uh, like for instance, uh, if we go further to, towards the end, the, the training sequence um, was towards the beginning. I think, if I remember correctly, um, it must have been uh, before or after the the coffee shop sequence. Um, I think you, you you found out more about his is. Background and he's being raised in Japan and everything. Well, and so I'm glad you mentioned that the film is actually supposed to be 90 minutes, or excuse me, 15 minutes longer because this is something, Chris, you and I were speaking about. The film is so short that it, um, I don't know if it worked as a detriment to the film, it being short. However, I really wish they would have brought in another editor of some kind because, man, oh, man, the continuity errors in this thing are, are hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you about the editing either now or further down the road uh, because there were also many editors who worked on the film that Warner Brothers brought in. Uh, I think, I mean, if you talk to Mark Lester about it, he's, you know, this is not his, his, uh, his cut and, and especially one of them, one of the editors, um, that was ultimately brought in by the studio was Stuart Baird, you know, the guy who directed uh, Executive Decision and who was the, um, you know, Mark Lester calls him the, um, what's, what, what is it? It's like the, the kind of the, the gun for hire assassin from Warner Brothers uh, because he was always, you know, um, Rarely credited, but hired from by Warner to, uh, you know, butcher some of the movies they did, you know, and and Mark Lester was very critical of him even as a person. So, <laughs> well, did he when he was editing the film? Did he watch the film prior to editing it? Because as we're going to be getting into, he brings a character back from the dead, <laughs> you know, just five minutes later. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure about that, but for sure there were many cuts. There were many editors working on it. So, you know, for sure, you know, that's where the continuity errors will come from. Oh, and also I should mention, talking about continuity, there's another thing that totally kind of screwed the movie over was that uh, uh, Lester told me that the script supervisor who's in charge of continuity um, was for some reason she was a, a bitter person and, and very kind of like for some reason she wanted to uh, raise the crew against the production 
Um, I, I have no idea why she was like a, you know, very um, kind of a union person and, and apparently was, uh, you know, not doing her job or anything and was more like trying to pick up a, a, a fight and shut down the, the thing. And it happens to be, <laughs> that's a, a bit of trivia, it happened to be the mother of Kirsten Stewart, who's now, you know, one of the biggest stars out there. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. But going back to Brandon Lee, I will say Lee plays this character extremely well. And, it, you know, it, it is such a shame that, you know, we lost him as early as we did in his career because the guy has charisma. I mean, Lee, when he is on screen, he is he is hilarious the way he delivers his lines. He's extremely likable. I, I, I would put it out there. I don't know if you guys would agree or not. But had he had he had a longer career and did not did not die um, as as early as he did and as unfortunate as he did, I would say he would have given the likes of Van Damme and Steven Seagal a run for their money. I could easily see him getting some of the same roles and definitely delivering <laughs> d delivering the lines a little better in some of these roles. Um, but he is doing an amazing job. This is his first real role in a studio film. And you can't imagine anyone, anyone else in the role um, that Brandon Lee plays as Johnny Murata. You know, what you were talking about in terms of Brandon Lee and his future, um, you know, after Showdown in Little Tokyo, obviously he did Rapid Fire. And his progression in terms of, you know, showing his charisma and being able to carry a movie, when you see how he goes from Showdown to Rapid Fire, I mean, I, I think there was a, a lot of growth there. And I, I think he he definitely was headed to uh, to some pretty big things. Um, you know, there's there's uh, long been the talk that the uh, the script that eventually became Die Hard with a Vengeance uh, was originally you know it was not a Die Hard script. It was a script by uh, Jonathan Hensley that was uh, that was called Simon Says, and you know that was originally supposed to be a vehicle for Brandon Lee um, that that you know Fox wanted to do with him as the lead. Uh, at that point, it had no connection to Die Hard. Um, so I, I think he, you know, it, that ultimately did not happen. But I think he was certainly someone who was was going to get even better um, as he went along. And yeah, it's definitely, a, you know, a huge tragedy. One of the one of the, you know, kind of the the, the, the greatest tragedies, you know, in terms of how he uh, he met his end. Um, but in terms of, of showing uh, his charisma and how he went from uh, you know something like Laser Mission, which was horrendous, and then getting better with Showdown Low Tokyo, and then much better even still with Rapid Fire, and then The Crow. I I, I think he really he was a true talent, and 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 the folks that just kind of see him as Bruce Lee's son, I think are missing the boat because I think he was he was a really uh, a, a very spectacular performer. Yeah, and I I think that. Uh... Maybe he would have been even a bigger star than uh, Van Damme or Seagal or another kind of star. Like, I think Brandon, because, you know, he he, he looks great. And, and of course, he, he's been great in the action films that he's done. And I agree that, you know, he his, uh, his charisma and his talent was um, even better in, in Rapid Fire. Um, but he wasn't... You know, he didn't have, you know, he had a face that, you know, you could cast him in other roles as well. Or, you know, maybe, um, you know, other entertainment uh, movies, which I think he wanted to do. Like, I think he wanted to not just make uh, action films, but 
uh, all kinds of uh, of movies, and uh, um, I also know that Dolph was very admirable, uh, you know, admiring um, his, uh, you know, his work and also his his ambition at the time. And you know, Dolph would admit that Brandon was probably more ambition than he was, and was certainly going to be a uh, a big star um, had he not been um, had he not passed away. And and uh, this is tragic. And uh, um, I also think the, the the only thing I would say in Showdown was that. His role was probably not like it could have been written a little better because sometimes I mean it, it works great, but sometimes I feel like he was his character was maybe over the top with being a wise ass and and you know uh, being kind of almost like an asshole uh, to Dolph and cracking jokes you know uh, that are almost like. Out there and uh, and slightly off. So uh, yeah, I I think it it and because they didn't tailor the film so much around him and and they they probably even regretted it because they they realized how you know uh, how much he was. I think when they saw the the dailies and when the the movie was done, um, I I have to check, but I. I I also think there was something about his salary that they had to pay him more in the end because originally he was paid he was about to be paid like 50 grand and ultimately I think they had to pay him 250 so but but yeah he, he probably would have done really well and and could have you know branched out in in many things in many roles well and you know, I, I will say I do remember it is it is, you know, like we've established, it's definitely unfortunate that that he passed away as early as he did. However, I will say that, you know, when he did pass away, you know, th you know w w when The Crow was released, I know that Showdown in Little Tokyo saw probably its most increase in terms of sales and rentals, you know, after the fact, because everyone wanted to see, you know, his work, you know, prior to his death. So I don't want to say it's one of the positives of his death by any means, but I, I would say it's the fact of it's his passing that has, I would say, brought the film as much attention and um, memorability as it has nowadays. Because I distinctly remember, you know, when I first saw this, you know, <laughs> when I first saw this when I was in middle school, everyone else who had seen it, you know, and had enjoyed it as much as I did, they were watching it because it was a Brandon Lee film and, you know, the, the crow had come out and the crow had just, you know, defied all expectations whatsoever and made him a, uh, made him an instant star, you know, after the fact. Yeah. There's, there's no question about it. Uh, and nowadays, uh, it, it also increased over the years. Like I know even for Dolph, it's one of his most popular films nowadays, uh, which I don't think it was the case, um, 25 years ago. Yeah, no. But, the, you know, one of the things that I do love about it is, you know, it, it is a buddy cop film. We've discussed that. But the the culture clash between it, it within it is, 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 is incredibly unique, you know. And by the culture clash, I mean, you know, you have Dolph, who is this white guy who knows more about Japanese culture than his partner, who is, in fact, half Japanese. You know, his partner is more the valley dude. 
And I have to wonder, you know, was this added on upon the casting of, you know, they figured, okay, they have Lundgren, they have Lee, let's, you know, kind of turn the tables on this a bit, because you would, you would expect it might be the other way around, but it works to the film, and it is definitely one of the things that makes the film stand out among all of the other films in that buddy cop genre. Uh, no, it was already in the, in the concept of the film and, and the first, the first script. Uh, that was always the thing was that to, that reverse culture, um, with having these two characters, uh, um, being on, on two contrasting sides like this and with the, you know, having the, 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 um, Western guy being the, the Japanese expert and, and, uh, the Asian guy being the, the, the full on American. I mean, you guys have touched on it, but, but that really is my favorite aspect of the movie. I mean, I love the action and, and, and that's, that's obviously a, a high point of the movie, but, um, I love the fact that they, they switched it up and they made Lundgren the, uh, the, the actual samurai while, you know, Brandon Lee is kind of the valley dude who, uh, you know, he's, he was raised, uh, you know, doing martial arts, but was, you know, spending most of his time probably at the beach and, and doing more, uh, California activities. And I, and I think that switch is, is one of the best traits of the movie. And, and I think it, it's one of the things that helps it, uh, helps it stay fresh even today. Would it be okay if, um, for the rest of the episode, anytime we refer, refer to Lundgren as a samurai, just to go along with my theory, if we could please call him a super samurai, if that's possible, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'll try. We'll try. <laughs> so, you know, but the, the, the two leads, you know, we have Lundgren and Lee, um, they, they, in the coffee shop, they, they have a little bit of a, uh, uh, a dick measuring contest among them, but they are able to partner up fairly easily, easily where they're able to um, apprehend this suspect who is a member of the Yakuza clan. And we notice this by his body tattoos, again, bringing out that motif, the repeated motif of, you know, these tattoos. And this brings back memories for Kenner, where we find out that he witnessed his parents being murdered by a clan member when he was nine. You know, boy, as a viewer, you have to wonder if this is going to come into play later on in the film. But, but you know, it, it is it is an interesting scene because, you know, the, uh, the, the suspect breaks his own neck. And um, good thing we won't see this character again later on in the film, right? Yeah, I mean, what a coincidence, uh, you know, the, as these things happen, <laughs> that uh, the, the man who, you know, murders your American parents in Japan uh, – just happens to end up being the crime lord that you will then hunt down in Los Angeles. So it's, you know, I mean, it's one, it's one of those coincidences that, you know, I think we've all experienced something like that in our lives. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, 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 it's happenstance. A complete happenstance. Yeah, no, but, um, yeah. So they apprehend the suspect. He breaks his neck, you know, uh, Lundgren figures out that something, something isn't kosher that the Yakuza could be possibly, making their way into Los Angeles, if they're not already into Los Angeles. And we switch gears to our main villain of the film, Kerry Tagawa's Yoshida. And he is planning on taking over L.A. by starting off with this bonsai club. And he, <laughs> I know we're kind of moving forward here, but yeah, he takes over the bonsai club by taking out the owner of the bonsai club, who we saw earlier in the film in that gambling den, the character's name is Tanaka, and he kills him in a car compactor. 
you know, this is, <laughs> again, one of the other hilarious moments. Are you guys like me where you guys notice the, the dummy right away in that scene in the car? Maybe not right away, but I definitely saw it at some point. Okay, Chris, you noticed it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I remembered it the very first time that I had seen it. But, yeah, again, it's like if you if you see it, you know, two or three times, it's it becomes impossible not to notice it. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I must add that uh, in the in the shooting script, you had more backstory about the Tanaka character and and the girl who gets her head cut off. Um, I mean, I, I, in terms of of the story, everything was tied together in in a more uh, sensical and logical way, so that you, you understood everything and, and less sharply, you know, how it's presented in the film. Now, I have no idea how you know a, a longer version would have worked, and maybe it would have. I, I can't say. Uh, the movie definitely holds up as it is, you know, as a, as a, a full on, um, action body movie. Um, but everything made more sense. And at the same time, I can't say that it was, you know, uh, a boring, full of dialogue kind of, kind of dramas. You, you just had a little bit of everything that were cut out, uh, that made more sense. To, to make you follow the story and understand everything. Now, the one thing I will throw out there, uh, th this is actually on uh, Kerry Tagawa's website, which sadly hasn't been updated in years. But in discussing the character of Yoshida, I loved this quote and I wrote this down. But, you know, the, the, character, the character of Yoshida, he is not a bad guy who you love to hate. He is a bad guy who is going to give you nightmares. And he is, I mean, he is utterly chilling in this film. I mean, he is just pure evil. He, he is ugly, you know, just in terms of his, his overall demeanor and the things that he does in this film. And I think that's how you know when you have, I mean, we've discussed this before on the previous episodes, but your film is going to be memorable if your villain is memorable. And Kerry Tagawa, he may not be the most physically imposing character um, or actor for that matter, but the, this character is, is just despicable by, by, you know, all facets. So that is definitely one of the um, one of the true one of the true perks to the film. Chris, I'm curious. Would I, I know we've discussed you know your favorite villains in films, but would you say that Kerry Tagawa, his portrayal of Yoshida, is is one of your favorite villains of these films in the '90s? Oh yeah, no he he's way he's way up there. I mean he's just a hundred percent just bad to the bone. Uh, you know. <laughs> How can you really, I don't know if top is the right word, but I mean, the scene with him and his goons and, you know, poor sweet angel, I mean, I don't know, it doesn't get more despicable than that. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the kind of scene where you just kind of want to just take a shower when it's over because you just feel like, oh God, what did I, I mean, but in, in kind of a good way, because you need that sort of a villain. You, you need to have someone who's just so awful like this and and he he fills it to to the brim with with like we said it before and i'll say it again just pure evil and he does a fantastic job i mean he's a great actor i mean I, i've really enjoyed him in in tons of movies you know he, he's capable of playing you know relatively normal guys that doesn't always play villains but i mean he just he he really has 
the 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 swagger for for the type of villain that you want in this movie. Well, and it, when you look at the film, when you look up the film on Google or YouTube or you know, you just look up, you know, any kind of any kind of interesting fact about the film for whatever reason. Well, actually no, you you established the reason, excuse me. But the most memorable scenes is unfortunately the the scene where they they behead the character of Angel portrayed by Renee Griffin. So they overdose her on a on an extremely heavy dose of methamphetamines, and then you know yeah the Yoshida character just beheads her with this katana sword. Of all the scenes in the film, this is this is one of the more memorable scenes that is readily available on YouTube or just you know in any kind of review of the film. This scene is going to be the one that is that is thrown out there. Jeremy, what were you going to add about that? Well, uh, I'm going to say that this is, uh, you know, I mean, this is the scene that I was, you know, horrified about when I first saw the film when I was 13. You know, I didn't expect that. And um, um, actually, I'm going to add that um, it's not huge, but the the, the U.S., the American cut for for getting the R rating... um, this scene and and a couple of others was uh, was trimmed. The 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 European DVD uh, has a few more shots. Um, I was also gonna say talking about Carrie Tagawa, um, who I agree is just you know horrible and cruel in the in the the most horrible way. Uh, he reminded me in uh, the character of Ben Gazawa in Roadhouse. That's the exact same kind of cruelty and evilness uh, that also kind of gave me nightmares uh, because I saw Roadhouse. I was 10 years old and saw it in the theater, and that was pretty freaky uh, to see at that age. And and, uh, it's just these guys, I just wanted to kick their ass and, you know, punch them and, you know, until the, the, uh, you know, you just, I just hated them. You know that that is an excellent comparison. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, the the main villain that uh, um, that Garza plays in Roadhouse is is right up there as just being just just utterly despicable and gross. And yeah, you really want him to meet his maker by by the end of the film. Uh, Roadhouse is significantly longer than than <laughs> Showdown Little Tokyo, so you do have to wait your time for that one. Um, but Showdown Little Tokyo, yeah, um, and we're gonna be getting to the the. <laughs> The death scene of uh, of the character of Yoshida at the end of this, but yeah, no, that that is an excellent comparison. So as we move along, and we okay, so the character of Angel uh, dies, and so this this is going to spur the investigation for the characters of Kenner and Murata. We also get the character of Monaco, played by Tia Carrere. This is pre Wayne's World. She is stunning. She is a knockout in the film. But yeah, you know, every one of these films, you always need a love interest character. And so Tia Carrere fulfills this role. She is a friend of Angel's, and she is going to inform our two detectives that the owner of the Red Dragon Brewery is also the owner of the nightclub where she works. A fight breaks out. Again, the, the film cannot go four minutes without having an action <laughs> sequence. So this is the first time that we get to see Lundgren and Lee team up, have each other's back, and, you know, kick ass is what they do. I, I love this. They're, they're two cops who are able to display their martial arts skills. And Lundgren really hadn't, you know, he, here he is. He's a black belt in karate. He hadn't really had the opportunity in a film. You know, he had that one kick in 
in I Come in Peace. And then he had a couple uh, martial arts moves that he did in The Punisher. But I would say those he was just more defending himself more than anything else. This is the first time we really get to see Lundgren put those on display. And, and the scene is fun. I do have to kind of laugh, you know. You know, Chris, you talked about a, a scene earlier where you shake your head. Do, do you shake your head at the scene? Because this, I'll put it out there right now, actually. I should back up. But this film actually used to be a uh, a, a drinking game that my uh, the, my buddies and I would, would put on and we would, you know, we would drink while watching it. Because there are just so many fun, fun scenes in the film where you can do that. But the scene where Murata pulls out the change out of his pocket and says, perhaps we should have paid cover. And then he throws the change into the guy's eye and the guy just gets blinded apparently by this and they're able to kick ass. I have to shake my head at that scene because just I've never heard of anyone getting blinded by change before. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's, you know, hey, look, I mean, I, I suppose if somebody randomly I mean, look at it this way. If somebody just randomly kind of threw change at you, it would distract you. I mean, you would kind of be sort of like, well, why is why is there change in my face? And probably would be enough time for someone with the the martial arts prowess of of Brandon Lee to take advantage of that distraction. So I actually think it was a pretty slick move. It's a boss move, and uh, and I'm all for the 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 change into the ass kicking. Well, and we also find out that so. As Lee and as Lundgren go down into the basement of the of the uh, nightclub, you know, Lundgren is saying, hey, we just need to pay our respects. You know, they're going to let us go. We find out, like I said, the film is 78 minutes, and we also have this personal vendetta, you know, element that is also tied into the film. We find out, I don't know if you guys saw this one coming, that, <laughs> that Yoshida <laughs> is the one who is responsible for killing Kenner's parents. Excellent scene here. I, I love the scene of Lundgren pulling out his piece and holding it to the temple of, of Yoshida. And he is just shaking, you know, with, you know, he yeah. doesn't know what to do and he's trying to control himself. He's just shaking. The scene is hilarious. But Jeremy, what, what can you add about that, man? I, I, I always love that scene because I, I just love how Dolph tries to, to be really, I don't know, he, he, I think he tried to be really emotional. He just and he's just standing there holding a gun to someone's face and for quite a while. Um, so that must have been a challenge for him. And I don't know, there's something about their, you know, their their eyes confrontation because uh, Tagawa Yoshida is just, you know, doesn't blink and, and um, you can tell there's something going on that's uh you know uh, already a, a big confrontation and a almost psychological confrontation now yoshida chris i don't know if you noticed this or not but uh yoshida hasn't aged one bit since those flashback scenes where he kills kenner's parents and to now he he looks exactly the same he has a scar but yeah yeah no i mean whatever he's been doing in those you know 20 plus years i mean he definitely you know, should have kept on doing it. Uh, you know, well, I don't know, moisturizer or what, what type of, uh, <laughs> what type of, uh, you know, bombs or lotions that he was using. But yeah, I mean, he really held up terrifically in that time aside from the big scar. So yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't condone any of his actions as a crime lord, but, uh, in terms of just whatever type of healthy lifestyle he was living, I, I don't think anybody can say that, that he was in the wrong there. No, no way. <laughs> Now, there is a parody. I don't know if you guys have seen this. And I, 
<laughs> I, I just had to, you know, it reminded me so much of it. But did you guys ever see the film National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1? Yes. Okay, Jeremy, have you seen it? Um, you know what? I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. I've seen some parodies, that's for sure. I'm not sure I've seen that one. So the, the film is not great, you know, don't get me wrong. But the, the thing that is that is so memorable about it is, okay, you know, Loaded Weapon 1, for anyone out there listening who has not seen it, this is a parody of these type of movies. I mean, it, at its core, it's a parody of Lethal Weapon, but it's really a parody of just these 90s buddy cop film. And there is there is a scene in Loaded Weapon 1 where Sam Jackson, again, has a gun and is shaking like, like Lundgren is doing. I recommend anybody who, you know, who has seen either of these films to just watch them in tandem, watch Showdown first, and then maybe watch Loaded Weapon 1, because it is hilarious. Sam Jackson. Chris, do you remember the scene? I do, I do. Yeah, that that is a funny bit from there. Um, uh, really, my favorite bit from Loaded Weapon is the, is the Bruce Willis cameo. Uh, I, I think that was, that's the, the kind of the high point of the movie. I, I think a lot of the gags don't quite work in Loaded Weapon, but yeah, certainly the the Sam Jackson shaking his gun and uh, the Bruce Willis cameo, and, and there's a few other. I mean, it, it's worth watching once, but it, it to me, it never quite goes up to that level of a of a Naked Gun, which is, I think, what it was aiming for. Yeah. So, but Lundgren's character is able to finally confess and let and let Lee in, let the character of Johnny Murata in on everything that is going on. Some great banter there, back and forth between. Between uh, between Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren, I, I I loved so many of those lines, and I wrote a couple of them down. But I love the line where Lee says, "You know, if you if you don't tell me right now what's going on, then you're going about this alone." And then Lundgren says, "Okay, I'll go about it alone." And just how Lee says, <laughs> "No, that's not good enough." You know, I <laughs> yeah. love that scene. But my favorite line, actually, in uh, the entire movie, I feel like if you could, if you could sum up the movie with one line from the film, you know, that, that pretty much gives a plot synopsis for the film. Brandon Lee gives this line and it is hilarious because in the real world, this film doesn't exist in the real world. Let's, you know, let's face it. But in the real world, no one would say this, but he says, quote unquote to Lundgren, I am partnered with a homicidal maniac on a personal vendetta of family vengeance. If you need a line to summarize the plot that is never going to get spoken in everyday, in everyday life, you got to love that. You got to love that piece. Yeah. Yeah, I mean in case if if you didn't know what the movie was about at that point, I mean he he spells <laughs> it right out for you and uh and if you even if you weren't really following along, uh maybe you know that would that would wake you up and oh, that's what we're doing here. Okay, fair enough. Let's go. Continue. Well, and, he, and he says it. Yeah, and 5 minutes later he says it again if you remember. Um they're they're driving in the car on their way to the stakeout and he talks to Lundgren about how he wants to, you know, he wanted to work for Malibu or whatever. And Lundgren says, "Well, that'll never happen." And he says, "Oh, great! I'm I'm helping you out on your mission of on your mission of personal vengeance. You crushed my dreams. Like it's just, yeah. Again, reminding you, well, what are we going for with this movie again? Okay, that's right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a revenge thriller. Got it. So, so all these gangs get together. This is one of the other elements of the film that that is hilarious. That also would be great for you know, again, if you're going to do a drinking game with the film. But we have the yakuza. They are planning on taking over Los Angeles." And by doing this, they're gonna they're starting again with the with the bonsai club, using the brewery to kind of help manufacture the uh, the drugs. And what they're doing is they're strong arm strong arming all these gangs to where they're gonna take over their drug distribution and drug drug supply. Uh, the scene again is hilarious. I don't know if you get 
I don't know if you'd get a movie like this made nowadays, but you certainly wouldn't. I don't know if you'd get a scene like this, but you have all these gangs together and every ethnic stereotype is on display <laughs> in this room. You have some members of the Crips, you have the Hispanic Mafia, you have the Hells Angels, and they're all completely kosher with one another. There's no fighting going on among one another. It's like a social club. They're getting together, and Yoshida is able to demonstrate his uh, his prowess and letting them know that he is the boss and he is in business by cutting off the arm of one of the members of Hells Angels. But the scene is hilarious, just how you have every ethnic stereotype on display for this meeting. Yeah, it's the the United Nations of villainy uh, all on display. Everybody everybody's represented. Though, you know, honestly, you know, kind of looking back, unless I'm missing it, they don't really have like, you know, the stereotypical Italian mobster there. They've got, you know, they have the Latin gang, they have the, the black gang, and they have the Hell's Angel bikers. But it's like I, I don't really spot any of the very stereotypical uh, Italian gangsters in there. I, I'm not really sure why they got cut out. But I think my favorite part of that scene is uh, is you know when the the biker basically tells Yoshida off and you know basically says ah you know we're not going to be part of this you know this is there's no way we're going to let you do this. Just the way the biker just conveniently leaves his arm there up against the, you know whatever he's leaning up against he just has his it's just you know he's just very casual just he's angry but he's very casual with his arm up against there and it's just it's just very inviting it's like you know no wonder he you know Yoshida would cut it off i mean it's right there presented to him as as easy as as uh, as possible and so i always get a kick out of uh, out of the, just the way the the, the biker is, is standing there in that scene what do you think the memo was like in in organizing this meeting among as you said at the the united nations of gangs i i got to wonder what 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 was sent out to to unite them all together and just the fact like i said they're all together and they're completely fine with one another i mean they're all in competition with one another so i i find it amazing that they're all in this in this same room together but um yeah but w we see that there is of course a greater threat and a greater evil in the form of yoshida and the yakuza well you, you gotta think that he's probably you know smart enough and manipulative enough that he would you know make them an offer that you know they they couldn't uh um they, they couldn't reject so you know they somehow all got together and it it reminds me of you know it, it's almost the the same you know plot to to uh, invade the, the America in the Punisher you know uh, uh, Lady Tanaka who you know tries to control the the Italian mob and just before that Gianni Franco is trying to rally all the 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 mob families and everything. Right, that, that, that's a good comparison, that's a good point. But the film clicks along to our next action sequence in which Lundgren and Lee are able to save, save Tia Carrera Monaco um, from Yoshida's, Yoshida's palace. You know, um, she is getting ready to commit the Japanese act of seppuku, which is ritual suicide. And Lundgren, again, is able to be this superhuman, you know, samurai that he is. And he runs in to save the day while Brandon Lee is is back doing what? I, I, I wonder if, I, I don't know what was going on in the script writing phase, but yeah, Brandon Lee is just, he just disappears. They, they're at the top of the hill, if you remember, and they see what's going on through the binoculars. Lundgren runs down, decides he is going to save the day, 
And again, we, we talked about earlier how he's a force of nature in this scene, doing things that no regular human can do. But Brandon Lee is unfortunately just kind of left behind for, for all the action here. Odd, considering this is a buddy cop film, and and one of the buddies in this duo is is left behind. Chris, did you did you notice that at all? Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, you definitely notice. But when you get down to it, it is this is why he's got the biggest font uh, as compared to anybody else. And you know, this is this is his scene. This is his time to to show off. And, and I really, I really like this sequence. I mean, I think there's some really awesome, uh, bit, you know, action beats here. Uh, there is also some, some funny moments. Uh, you know, the, the gentleman who gets his neck broken and still kind of reaches for, uh, for his arm. Um, yep. it's, 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 you know, maybe not, hey, maybe that's physically, scientifically possible. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to try and say that it's, it's, it's not possible, but that, that's always kind of been one of those funny moments, but, yeah, I, I really like it. I, I think it's a, a good showcase for for Lundgren to to just do some major damage. You know, a little over the top maybe with the uh, with the turning over of the car. Um, but I mean, my, I, with what we've seen so far in the movie, it's really not that out of line to to see him, uh, you know, pull pull the car up and uh, and and you know, use that as a as a shield to get away. Well, and he is, you know, pretty much storming this compound with a handgun as opposed to all these Yakuza members who have, you know, rounds of ammo and machine guns. And Lundgren is a crack shot. I mean, he is, every shot he is firing is just hitting every single one of these Yakuza members. I mean, the, the scene is absolutely hilarious. And going along with the whole idea of him being invincible, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but it's one of the scenes that I just, I, I laugh my ass off each time. He picks up Monaco. He's able to uh, grab the sword from her before she stabs herself he picks her up he carries her and he walks through the sliding glass door he does not run through the sliding glass door and keep in mind there is a handle to the door if you look to the left of him he could have easily just opened up the door but he just walks through the glass door and this is after he sticks his hand through the door wall to subdue that bad guy this is after you know we see all these examples Again, and the listeners are going to get annoyed with me uh, keep mentioning this, but he is absolutely superhuman. The fact that he is able to just walk through this this glass door. It's hilarious. It's ridiculous, but it's hilarious at the same time. Yeah, this is uh, Ken or He-Man. And, (laughs) um, you know, I always love that sequence. Uh, (laughs) I just got a laugh at the Brandon Lee's line when he says, you know, right before he says to him, you know, Hey, you know, there's nine guys in there. Like, how does he know that there's exactly nine guys in the ha- left in the house? That, that no. always sounded hilarious to me. And, and then after after the shootout, when they 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 meet up again, you know, Lundgren says, "Oh, you know, I I had to shoot nine of them." So so they kept they keep mentioning how many <laughs> the exact number of how many guys there were. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention was that. You know, this was the very early 90s, and um, I think this is one of the first American movies that tried to emulate uh, the John Woo style in that sequence. And oh, I it's, can see it's that, not yeah. It's not up there with Army of One yet, uh, right. you know, and of course, you know, Art Boiled w- w- hadn't been done, uh, but I'm I'm pretty sure... There was a huge influence in there. Otherwise, you know, all the how he rolls around and and 
and and shoots the guys uh it, it was definitely con- you know conceived as, as a uh an attempt to 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 do an uh, Hong Kong action sequence you know this was kind of where where we first started to see that John Woo influence in in American action movies um i think you saw it even even more that same year with uh, with Van Damme's Double Impact. There's I mean I think a lot of the action there seemed to be pretty pretty influenced by John Woo. But I definitely think that especially in this scene where Lundgren storms the uh, the the compound, that yeah I think you definitely can tell there's some John Woo influence there. And it would only get magnified even more with the movies that came out a few years after this. But I think that that's definitely a good point that this is one of the, the first ones where you where you started to see that that influence from uh, from the Hong Kong action make its way into American films. Well, and the bathhouse fight that follows is another example of of this Hong Kong influence. I mean, first of all, the location for this fight is is great. You know, I mean, who would have thought that they would do this this scene in a bathhouse? But yeah, um, Lundgren taking on the sumo. Uh, the sumo gentleman is is hilarious. I mean, it, it's great because finally, you know, in the film, Lundgren hasn't met his match by anyone else in this film, and finally, he takes on this sumo guy. And yeah, you know that he he's finally starting to uh, feel a little bit of pain. But this entire bathhouse sequence is it is great. I do have to laugh because as you watch the film, I, I need to check out the Blu-ray to see how the transfer is on the Blu-ray. But did you guys notice at all? the tattoos smearing on, on any of the guys as they were uh, getting out of the bathtub during this scene. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, I, I think that you can definitely tell there's uh there, there's some, some, some make makeup mishaps that go on in that sequence. Yeah. No, Jeremy, what were we going to add? Uh, nothing. I'd say, you know, it's probably difficult, you know, having this sequence set in a bathhouse you know, you have all these guys that they had to tattoo for the, the you know, the, the few hours prior to the shoot, you know, uh, and uh, having all this, this water and everything. They probably didn't have, today, they probably have the technique to make the tattoos last really well uh, with water. And this was an action scene, so it must have been pretty complicated if you had to check tattoos for every shot. So it's it's not surprising that you you can see that at the same time it's not too obvious i think so you, you don't really pay attention to it i will say that i do remember on um you know um Kerry Tagawa did the film planet of the apes back in 2000 2001 it's not a great film i don't recommend anyone watch it but if you do watch um the the special features that were on the the disc that were released they were they were interviewing Kerry Tagawa as he was getting in the makeup chair again because he played one of the apes in the film. And he does say that, you know, he, while he did sit for quite a few hours, you know, putting on the, the ape makeup for his role in Planet of the Apes, he said it was nothing compared to when he did Showdown a Little Tokyo. He's, I, I, I do remember him saying that putting on those tattoos was a much more laborious and time-intensive process than than the ape costume so you can only imagine i mean you know while while you do see it smearing and you do look at it as being okay those are just tattoos you do have to appreciate the fact that the fact that here tattoos you know these fake body tattoos put on the body of these actors took significantly more time than an entire ape costume that was made in a film 10 years later that says something i think 
Yeah, and I must say that they hired one of the top guys uh, who did, who later did lots of makeup work for and design for big movies, huge movies. Uh, uh, Patrick Tatapoulos is his name, and he's a French guy who went to Hollywood and he's a, he has become a huge name since. Um, and I think I even saw on eBay there was an ad for Showdown in Little Tokyo um, that was probably published in a, in a trade magazine where um, they, they tried to push him for consideration uh, for for some awards. I, I'm not sure it was for the, the Academy Awards, but, but uh, they were definitely um, trying to have his work on the film recognized. No, it makes sense. It makes sense, definitely. And, you know, the film, I mean, there's not much left to the film, you know, unfortunately, after this bathhouse scene, because there are so many action sequences. But I think in the entire film, there's maybe about 20 minutes left. And so we go back to Kenner's, Kenner's pad, his place. And, you know, Chris, when you and I were talking about I Come in Peace, one of the one of the great motifs about these about these films of this era is just how our lead characters just have just these badass swank pads. And Kenner's is no different. I mean, again, it's it's going back to that whole Japanese culture that he was raised in, that he has embraced. And I love how he just throws out there, you know, just a passing line. Oh, yeah, I built it. <laughs> I built this place. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the pad looks cool. It's a shame to see it uh, get blown up as quickly as it did. And, Jeremy, like you mentioned, the whole editing, the whole editing of the film is a detriment to it because we get this training montage scene that's put at the end. Chris, I don't know if you were like me, but considering that his pad had gotten blown up, were you wondering at all, okay, where is he training? <laughs> well, I mean, I, now, isn't it established that he's got, a, you know, a, a a normal residence, which is where he did his training, and that, you know, the, the, the place that is blown up, that was, you know, kind of his, you know, like I mentioned earlier, sort of his fortress of solitude, what kind of reminds him of his, you know, his Japanese upbringing. So I always just felt like, you know, he's just got kind of two different residences and, and you know, his, his training is done at his, uh, his main residence. You know, that's where he gets his mail and that's where he trains for showdowns against Yakuza, uh, gang leaders. And then he's got kind of his, you know, his side place where he went, um, to, you know, make sweet love to Tia Carrera and to, you know, basically hang out and, and trade barbs with Brandon Lee. Yeah, I will, I will just say uh, that you can recognize that the place that he, he's training in is the place where he, he puts uh, Minako um, uh, to stay. And when he, com when he comes back for her, that's right. or even when he arrives, you, you can recognize, I think it's in the back, uh, you can probably even see the... Uh, you know the the bag or, or something. I know you can recognize it, and the same breaks and stuff. And like I said before, that training sequence montage um, was put towards the, the the beginning of the film. So it was the I guess it's his place in the city um, uh, where he's is is um, uh, you know uh, sleeping most of the time and. and uh, but so indeed, the way it's edited now, it doesn't make sense that he would go back to this place because they are actually trying to, um, you know, keep a low profile. But that's uh, you know, suspense of of uh, suspense of disbelief. 
Well, and I really wish they would have kept that training montage more at the beginning of the film, because like you said, it doesn't make sense, especially in terms of the story here. He's going to save the gal who he just made sweet love into, as you said, Chris. And I don't think he's going to have time to go through this training. But um, but yeah, we do get to see him preparing for battle in that Japanese gi in that headband. Um, before we get there real quick, I do, I mean, look, no analysis or review of this film is complete where we do not get to talk about the completely gratuitous and unnecessary love scene, as well as Brandon Lee's infamous line. So, uh, Chris, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let you start with that. What do you, what do we have to say? Well, I mean, look, uh, I, I guess if Brandon Lee is correct in, in what he said about, uh, you know, Dolph's uh, member, I guess if you're that large, you can afford to just lay there and just basically do nothing and just 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 let Tia Carrera do her thing. Because, um, yeah, Dolph does not – he doesn't come off as a very passionate lover in that scene. He just is kind of like, all right, here I am. Here's what I'm packing. You do your thing, Tia, and, and I'm just going to – I'm just going to just kind of lie back and, uh, and let things go where they may. And so – and with regards to the line – I mean, it, look, it's a funny line. It's, it is one of those kind of things that people first bring up when they talk about this movie. I, I, I always kind of wonder if, you know, how many, how many times did Brandon Lee have to, have to read the script and to, before he actually, you know, believed that that was really a line that he was being asked to say. Cause I gotta, I gotta imagine that's one where he's like, you know, look, uh, Mr. Lester, I mean, can we, can we do something here? Maybe can we, uh, can we maybe just give, give me something else to say here? So I, I always kind of wonder if, if anything went on behind the scenes with that line because it's it's it, look it's it's an infamous moment in in action film history. I would not remove the line. I think it fits in with uh, how over the top the rest of the movie is. Um, but but yeah, I, I would think if I'm Brandon Lee, um, you, you better be giving me a two hundred thousand dollar raise to say that line. Well, it stops the film completely in its tracks. I mean, the, the film is incredibly ridiculous. I mean, it is the absolute most ridiculous comic book ever you know, ever put on film at this point. Yeah, but that line um, stops the film completely in its tracks. It is my understanding, Jeremy, that the original line, and they do edit it out, and you can see because in the film they do cut to Dolph's reaction um, really quickly, but I guess originally the line was supposed to read, you have the biggest dick I've ever seen on a white man, which makes the line a little better. Not much, but it makes it it makes it a little better. And I find it um, hilarious that they edited that out because they thought it would be offensive. Yet the film is so unabashedly offensive toward every other stereotype in the film that that it's a little it's a little um, it's a head scratcher the fact that they edited that line out as much as they did. Yeah, that's right. And uh, first of all, I will say that the the love scene between Dolph and Tia Carrera uh, that plays before is, I think it's maybe the most embarrassing scene in the movie. Uh, I like the scene that's right before when they're in the bathtub. You know, you can tell uh, Tia Carrera is doubled. The, the, that's the one bit where David Michael Frank score is you know really bad uh, so you, you know it, it's unfortunate and then right before the the line and, and the action scene uh i will just say because you know we we also talk a lot about van damme and and whatnot 
you know, this is one of the only shots uh, in those filmography where he appears with his full butt, you know, appearing <laughs> as opposed to his friend Jean-Claude. Uh, you can yeah. kind of see it in the Punisher when when he's the the sewers, but this is this was definitely a shot designed to show off his butt. Well, he um, is in his prime physically. Physically, yeah. Lundgren is in is in his absolute prime in this film. So it only makes sense if he's going to do that in one film. But re- regarding regarding the love scene, I I don't know if you guys were like me at all, but it is slightly a little confusing, maybe even disturbing that. Um, Monaco would jump into bed with Kenner, considering she was she was viciously raped the night before. I'm, I don't want to get too right. much into that, but it's one of those things that I do have to wonder. Hmm, I don't know if that was the best idea from a story standpoint. But again, this was I, I don't want to say common, but this definitely fits within that that whole 1990 91 uh, misogynistic tone of films. That were that were put out around that time, and you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't get it nowadays. Or they would write it differently, like you know, maybe they would have them, you know, become a couple before she gets raped, you know, and that would be a different thing. But it's certainly yeah. not realistic or psychologically, you know, sensical. Uh, but as you said, you know, in those days, <clears throat> and especially with those movies, uh, and God knows. Some of the guys behind uh, must be pretty, you know, like, you know, white, powerful guys. Um, you know, like I remember when I talked to, to the, the, the co-producer, uh, Martin Kahn, uh he was like regarding Tia Carrera. He was pretty much, you know, very sexist and mi- almost mi- misogynist. Uh, like I remember him saying, oh, you know. She had a huge, a huge ass or something. Like quoting him, that's what he said to me. You know, so wow. uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, let's talk about the the because I really want to talk about it. The, the 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 line that was edited by by the studio. Uh, so indeed, the the line was written and shot as you have the biggest stick I ever seen on a white man. Uh, which of course goes back to their, you know, cultural differences. You know, like, uh, you right. know, he's, he's Asian and this is a, a, a white guy. Um, but also what, what was, what was never written, what was never mentioned in any script was that you can feel, I mean, if you think about it, that would really, um, make you think that, uh, Brandon's character was probably gay. And I wonder if I mean the the it was like that in, in in the line was there in the script, but I wonder if you know as an actor he didn't choose also to kind of um, like some actors do play him a, as a as a gay dude. Uh, but that's 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 another story. So the line. Um, so yes, they're, they're you know it's strange because Warner Brothers the studio was very high on the film when they made it. Um I I and and after that they seemed to be to go back and forth uh between supporting it and between kind of totally dismissing it and, and uh you know ultimately butchering the editing and 
you know, releasing it on just a, a few theaters because, you know, this was in about 140 <clears throat> theaters in the States, which is nothing. Yeah. Um, and, they, you know, there was no, no publicity at all or anything. Um, and so that line was, you know, and, and from what I was told, there were other lines in the movie that were edited like that. And indeed, they thought it, it, it might be taken as something offensive, which in retrospect doesn't make any sense because you know, it, it was disrespect. It would be disrespectful if Lundgren would say, "You know, you have the biggest dick I've ever seen on an Asian man." That would be really wrong and politically incorrect. But if it's an an Asian dude who says it, you know, you can't say it's it's offensive because you know the 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 white male are you know the the more Power, you know, dominant in society. Right, right. Well, I mean, there's quite a few lines um, that really don't make a whole lot of sense, to be perfectly honest. Um, right. Chris, I don't know if you picked up on any of these, but there is one line. I mean, you know, Chris, when you and I were speaking about I Come in Peace, we talked about how Lundgren plays Jack Kane with just such a badass swagger that he's able to get what he wants and people are able to just, you know, especially the ladies are able to swoon over him immediately. And it's no different in Showdown. But I love where, you know, they're in the hot tub together and he says, <laughs> he says to Tia Carrera's character, sometimes you do the right thing because you didn't have to do the right thing. That Does that make any sense to you at all? Cause <laughs> yeah. No, no, not, not very much. Not very much. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, to me, with as much analysis as as we have done and as a lot of others have done about you know Brandon Lee's infamous line at this point in the movie I, I think it's amazing how it sort of overshadows what is probably an even more a uh, mind-blowing line which is after you know Dolph and Tia's love scene in which you know Tia kind of rolls over to him and and proclaims uh you know that time i heard you coming so i mean right. it's like that's that's been like forgotten now because of brandon lee's lee line has completely upstaged it and i mean that line is is almost as as amazing as as what brandon says well yeah. both lines have both lines have absolutely no business being in the film um whatsoever but you know as dolph is suiting up to take on the the aunt the the assault that is getting ready to decimate his his fortress of solitude as you put it again one of the other elements of the film that is absolutely hilarious is Dolph suiting up um, getting ready for battle for this assault he is in nothing but boxer briefs <laughs> I can't get through this but yeah he's suiting up he's wearing nothing but boxer briefs and just how he's putting all sorts of size and you know all sorts of ninja stars and various various weaponry on his torso and he's just standing there you know completely like a cyborg robot just throwing all sorts of uh all sorts of the instruments at the incoming at the incoming people who are trying to uh to attack them and it's hilarious because if you watch it he throws he pretty much knocks out the first wave of the bad guys as brandon lee says it which yeah. is another line that i think maybe shouldn't be in the film but yeah he knocks him out and it's almost like the yakuza realize at that point Hey, we have this firepower. Let's go ahead and let's start using it now and start shooting the place up. It's hilarious. Yes, yes. No, I, I love that sequence. Um, 
yeah, the 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 video game line from Brandon. I mean, this the scene is, is not a great scene in terms of Brandon Lee's dialogue, um, but it, it's it's somewhat funny. I mean, again, you gotta kind of take these movies with a grain of salt. And uh, yeah, I, I love when he's just you know throwing all these various weapons at, at at the bad guys, and you know just hitting everyone perfectly. And you just have these you know swarms of you know yakuza henchmen just dropping like flies. And so yeah, I get a kick out of it, but yeah, in terms of uh, of believability, maybe that's not there. But um, you know, if you if you've come to this movie for for believability, then, then you've come to the wrong place. Well, and especially yeah. as he prepares for his final battle, and he wears his his amazing Japanese gi and headband, it's almost like he's you know hearkening back to uh, Daniel Daniel Larusso's. Uh, <laughs> outfit in the karate kid it is it is hilarious i i can't imagine how it played back in 91 92 um when i first saw this i i don't think i thought too much about it but i watch it now and it is hilarious to, to the point where i i imagine even lundgren if he sat down and, and watched the film he would probably have to look at these scenes as him running around uh in in this outfit also holding an assault rifle which is equally funny i i can't imagine but lundgren would just look at this and be like Oh boy, that was that was nineteen ninety for you. So what more can I say? <laughs> oh yeah, you you know how he's always cracking up, cracking up about you know whether it's, he's on the set shooting a movie and watching the replays, or whether he thinks about some of the stuff he's done or how he looked. You know, uh, definitely he he would. I don't know if he saw the movie recently. I don't think so, but he definitely must crack at at, at this costume. And at the same time, like someone mentioned, uh, this is definitely a comic book movie. And this is the guy who thinks he's a, you know, 16th century samurai. So he's, he's gonna suit up <laughs> in that uh, way. And, you know, at the, at the time, I thought it was awesome. Uh, Jeremy, and, and we agreed it was superhuman samurai. So I just would <laughs> like to. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> so when uh, Jeremy mentions that that you know this is a comic book film, I mean that, that kind of brings up something that that I, that I kind of want to mention with regards to this movie is that you know Bax era, late eighties, early nineties, you know, we, we we didn't have the the superhero films that that are everywhere now. You know, yeah, there was Batman, there were the Superman films, but you know, primarily there just weren't you know you know superhero films i mean these were for that generation these characters were our superheroes i mean if you look at commando and you look at rambo and showdown in little tokyo and and those movies i mean that that's what we had as, as young folks you know watching these films that they were our superheroes i mean they that i think the yeah. calling this a comic book movie is is perfect because it, that's what it is it's not maybe not based on a comic that was you know previously put out there but it, it, in essence, is a comic book film. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because, yeah, and it's no wonder. I mean, nowadays, you know, comic book movies are what is dominating the box office. I mean, that, that, is, that is, you know, what we have out there nowadays that are the guaranteed moneymakers. But it's no wonder that for so long, the, 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 the comic book genre, the superhero genre, was dormant for so long or was not taken seriously for so long when you have films like this. And and I don't mean that as a slight against the film in any way, but yeah, like you said, if this is a comic book movie, if this is the closest thing we have to it, then it's no wonder that 
you know, the, the genre was stalled and was, was not taken seriously and actors didn't, didn't really want a part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, like you said, it, 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 it you know, they, they, they were probably looked upon as, as pretty silly by, a, by a lot of people in those days and they are silly movies, but that's the appeal. And that's, I think what people like, I don't, I don't think anybody, you know, I don't even care what your age was. I don't think anybody watched showdown little Tokyo and really sat down for a, you know a real thought provoking uh you know character study you know it's it's martial arts it's mayhem it's hot women it's fast cars and and look, there's there's nothing wrong with occasional movies providing that yeah if that's the only kind of movie you're watching then, then yeah that's a bit of a problem but i don't i don't think there's anything wrong with with enjoying what what type of uh what type of world that this film creates and it is. It's it's a comic book universe. It's just it just wasn't based on an existing comic book. That's the only difference, essentially. Well, and what a universe for it to exist in, because this is <laughs> this is um, hilarious. It's completely ridiculous, but it is fun. And as we as we you know get to the end of the film, we get two final fights. Brandon Lee finally gets a one on one with the character of Sato. Uh, and I didn't get the actor's name, but uh, he all he's probably more widely known as be, being Master Tetsu in the uh, first two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. But it is a really cool scene. You get to see that Brandon Lee, I mean, you got to see him demonstrate his his martial arts abilities earlier in the film. But this fight with uh, with Master Tetsu, as I call him, is is great because, I mean, he is just so limber and he's so lean in these in these scenes that he's able to uh, to demonstrate these skills. And we get him hilariously reading his Miranda rights while he is kicking, kicking Master Tetsu's ass. And then he's able to give that final one-liner. I, I would not say it's one of the best one-liners of the 90s. Maybe you guys would disagree with that. But I would say it's definitely one of the more memorable one-liners of this era. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. It's, uh, you know, I, I can think of a few that I probably like a little bit more. But uh, but yeah, yeah, you have the right to remain dead. It's uh, it's considering how he was building it up, you know, reading him his rights or or reciting his rights uh, before the death, and then to finish it on that on that line. It's it's a great it's a great uh, way to to send off that character and to uh, to you know it's a good showcase after some some maybe not so great lines that Brandon Lee had to recite earlier in the film. He finally gets a, a pretty badass one, and I think he uh, he sells it uh, perfectly. Yeah, Jeremy, yeah. what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I I loved it, and this is you know the, the final showdown is, is a lot of fun. Uh, I I think um, there's also a few bits of you know Hong Kong esque kind of things, and you know since you mentioned, I wanted to talk about it. You know. Um, I don't remember what's his name in the in Showdown, but you know um, the you know as you said you know Master Tatsu uh, is played by Toshishiro Obata, who's not primarily an actor yet. We've seen him in lots of movies, especially at the time, and but he's a genuinely uh, you know grandmaster in martial, in Japanese martial arts. And you can see if you look on on the internet, you you can uh, find lots of stuff about him. And I think now he's uh, completely dedicated to to his arts and is uh, really uh, you, you know one of the old school masters, Japanese masters in martial arts. And 
he's expert in several several of them and uh somehow he got you know like some of them if you were in in California you would get involved in stunts and and working on on, on uh these kind of movies and uh I wanted to to mention that uh I will say talking about martial arts talking about fights that the 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 fight coordinator on the film was Pat Johnson Johnston who was the the who was famous for doing the the um, the martial arts in the karate kid he did also uh teenage mutant ninja turtles and um you had uh, and of course Dolph had brought his uh, karate sensei uh from Sweden Brian Fitkin who trained him in all of his movies until you know the early 2000s interesting interesting well and you know what would this film be without finally Lundgren and Kerry Tagawa, you know, they have this, they have this hatred and this feud that is stemmed all the way from when uh, Lundgren's character Kenner was nine years old. So, you know, they need their final battle. And, you know, this is, this is a Yakuza movie. So it makes sense that they, they have a final sword fight. I do find it, you know, the, the film does have to, it does come full circle because what better, what better location for them to fight than at a Japanese uh, street parade. Why there's this parade going on at that moment? It's never really established, but hey, it makes total sense that they <laughs> that they have it out in the middle of the street, in the middle of this parade. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna gonna go there right now. As much as I like the sword fight, and as much as I I love the uh, the death, you know, Chris, you and I, when we were discussing Universal Soldier, we talked about how one of the one of the traits of these films was how your your villain had to just have the the most spectacular and glorious death so we have Lundgren who is able to stab Yoshida you know right through right through the chest then he throws him onto a pinwheel the pinwheel starts spinning how does it explode how does it catch on fire in the first yeah place? I, I have guys? I have no idea how it, it it was it already going to just catch on fire was it just poorly put together was there something about Yoshida's weight on it that caused it to just suddenly start to explode? So yeah, the 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 physics of it don't really make any sense, but uh, but it is it's a pretty pretty cool demise. I mean, I I can't think of uh, of any other uh, any other similar uh, you know final villain deaths that 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 really approach you know being. You know, I mean, first off, I mean, how does the torque that Dolph is able to to toss him? you know, with the sword, you know, inside Yoshida and to throw him with enough force so that the, that the sword will stick to the pinwheel. I mean, it's, you know, it's just like the rest of the movie. It's, it's completely over the top, but you know, in a movie like this, do you, do you just want, you know, Dolph to just stab him and just be done with it? No. I mean, you want, you want it to be uh, in the middle of this, uh, this parade down uh, down Little Tokyo's Main Street, and uh, and you want him to you want Yoshida to not only be stabbed but stuck to a pinwheel, revolve around at a very uh, at a very uh, high speed, and then eventually just explode for for no real reason. So I I, I love it. It's a top flight demise. Chris, have we not established by now that Lundgren's character is? able to do things that regular human beings are not able to do that defy logic that defy physics that defy all forms of reality so i think i think at this point you just have to go with it <laughs> yeah it's the the rule of the superhuman samurai <laughs> so um 
as we close this, close this up, gentlemen, I've had a wonderful time taking a look at this film. There's just so much about it. I mean, you know, kind of like our Universal Soldier and our I Come in Peace episodes, we've discussed the film at a greater length than the film's running time. Um, you know, the, the film yeah. is so quick. It's, you know, a, a mere 70, 75, 78 minutes. Um, but I'll, I'll start with you, Jeremy. Uh, in your opinion, I'm assuming the film gets a recommend, but why does it get a recommend from you? And more importantly, how does it how does it stand up and rank as a Dolph Lundgren vehicle? Well, um, you know, it's of course it's. I think it's one of the the most fun uh, titles of his his filmography, and it's right up there with "I Come in Peace." Um, you know, it's like we said, it's it's a comic book film, and uh, it's one of the rare occasions where you know Lundgren um, used his martial arts fully in a movie. I think it. Could have been even, even more, um, but uh, it, it's definitely a memorable film and of a, you know, that was made at a, you know, an era that's long gone, and you know the fact that it co-stars Brendan Lee is uh, another huge factor of, you know, the perennity of the uh, of the movie and. Uh, you know, I I think if if you really, you know, if you come back home and you're tired, you know, you don't want to have your brain cells work, you know, just put on Showdown in Little Tokyo and you'll have a blast. Uh, it was also, we, we didn't mention that it was, you know, um, Little Tokyo is a real neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles and they shot in all the, the actual locations. Uh, you know, the... the the parade was is actually a, a a parade that's happening in the spring in LA, and some of the shots were done uh, during the the actual parade. And um, there was, you know, it has it had a decent budget as well, and it had lots of very good people in the crew. Like, you know, for instance, uh, again, you know, I come in peace. Mark Irwin was the director of photography in Showdown. And uh, I come in peace, um, you know. Um, and uh, Mark Lester, you know, Showdown will probably not be remembered as Commando, but it's it's you know it went up there with uh, along with one of the his most popular and memorable films, you know. Uh, every now all the time people. We'll say, you know, Mark Lester from Commando and Showdown in Little Tokyo. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have uh, asked for, you know, a sequel. And, of course, Brandon Lee can come back. You know, I, I'd say it's, it would be possible with someone like Mark DeCascos or uh, somebody like that. Um, and, I, and I have a sad news to, to break to you because... Like I said, I, I spoke with the, one of the producers who didn't actually realize that the, the movie had become a cult classic. And what he told me about a possible sequel was that uh, he was thinking, that was years ago, and, and I doubt it will ever happen. But <laughs> the idea that it, he, he, you know, he went by me was that he thought about remaking it with... Uh, Chris Tucker, 
So, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know right. what to think about it, but that's just terrible. And, you know, we already had Rush Hour, so, and of course, it's a kind of a similar movie, buddy movie, so, I don't, but, you know, I doubt it will ever happen. So, thankfully, Showdown will, will be here forever. <laughs> Good. Yeah. No, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I shudder at the thought of that because I, I can't imagine how that could, how that could turn out any any good at all um but uh chris how about you man why, why does it get your recommend how does it rank and stack against london's other efforts i mean it's it's pretty high up my big three is kind of always been a universal soldier punisher and i come in peace um but but i mean this one is probably right there knocking on the door um of those three i mean it's 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 absolutely ludicrous it's completely over the top and and that's exactly what i want from this kind of a movie it just it, it it fits in with a lot of the movies that I love from this era. You know, we already mentioned Perfect Weapon and, you know, Marked for Death and Double Impact and Showdown Little Tokyo fits right in with those movies. I mean, they all basically feel like they're kind of in this this shared universe before, you know, studios started to, to do shared universe movies. And uh, and so that's what I love about it. And, yeah, I, I've always kind of wished that there had been a sequel um, but I, I kind of feel like we, we got somewhat of a sequel, at least in spirit with a, with skin trade um, that that was kind of the closest that I think we could have asked for with a, in terms of a movie that is it's way more serious and, and you know, has a, a much more kind of a dramatic you know, subject matter and is not quite as. As, uh, as as tongue in cheek as showdown, but I I, I kind of look at Skin Trade as somewhat of the of the spiritual sequel to to Showdown Little Tokyo, and and you know I'm a big fan of both those movies, and yeah, Showdown is is really high on my my list of uh, favorite ones that Lundgren did. I'm right there with you, Chris. I'm I'm right there with both you guys. I feel like this is this is a film that I you know I said earlier at the beginning of the show. Um, this wouldn't be made nowadays, you know, and, and, and even if they did try and make something like this nowadays, it certainly wouldn't have the same edge. It certainly wouldn't be um, as <laughs> as misogynistic as as the film is. I mean, I think they probably would have partnered Lundgren up with a with a female cop. I could I could see them going going that angle, you know, which which would have been cool. But it it wouldn't be the same the, the same movie. You know, this is a prime example of that era of the of the early 1990s. And I feel like if you wanted to give someone a couple examples of what action movies were like in this era and compare them with nowadays showdown would easily be at at the top of at the top of the list this was made at a time when r rated movies were meant to be r they were they were made to be rated r and this this fits that mold i mean it is it is extremely violent it has plenty of sex and nudity for no purpose whatsoever to the to the to the story it has stock one note characters with zero backstory in the film but that is that is what you want i feel like from one of these films and so i feel like from that angle it definitely it definitely works and it definitely fits and i would it, it's it's not as far as lundgren's films it's not one of my favorites it's not at the top of my list but i would say he probably looks the best and this is this is you know him at his absolute prime so if you want to see what Lundgren was like, um, you know, at, at the at the zenith or at the epitome of of his physicality, this is this is right up there. So I recommend anybody who has not seen the film to definitely definitely check this one out because it, it is it is a gem of of a forgotten era. Definitely, I'm I'm with you 100. 
uh yeah i think you uh you said it all and uh you know this is uh like like you said it's it's not my all-time favorite but it, it's definitely you know a, a film that's uh dear to my heart in terms of when it was made when i saw it and you know how fun it is um and how you know um I also feel something I wanted to say earlier that it's kind of like the it brought out everything from you know the the body movie genre uh, since it started with like 48 hours uh, and, and it's like it's it's at at the top of the genre uh, and was soon gonna uh, you know it it, it it I think it it lasted for like a you know a decade or so. And this was uh, right before it it, it started to um, to slow down, and and um, um, yeah, that's uh, what I wanted to say. And I'm glad we did this show. It was a great conversation. We had a lot of fun, and uh, can't wait to do it again. Oh yeah, we'll we'll definitely be getting together again, um, the three of us, definitely <laughs> to review because there's plenty of films in the pipeline that uh, that definitely deserve and are worthy of an analysis. But, but like I said, I couldn't have thought of a better one for us for us to get together for this one. Before we go, um, I'll let you guys uh, plug anything, uh, anything you would like. Uh, Chris, is there anything you'd like to uh, put out there or give a shout out to or plug? Oh, you know, no, no real plug. Just, just want to say that I had a, had a great time, uh, you know, talking with you guys. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Uh, definitely been a lot of fun kind of revisiting this one. And, uh, you know, I, I hope we can all, all get together for, for another one down the road. And, you know, just, uh, you know, thanks for, uh, again, having me on. And it was a, a, a real a real treat to speak to you again and to, to finally speak to Jeremy. Awesome. Jeremy, how about you? Do you have anything you want to plug or give a shout out to? Well, it was great to finally meet Chris in person because we've known each other for a decade or two. Uh, probably, yeah. probably two, and uh, you know, we 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 wrote to each other by messages and on, on message boards, and uh, I hope one time we can get together, the three of us, and maybe more more guys that I know from from the board. Uh, and uh, I, I'll just say this to you, uh, Sean. Um, Please, please get the Blu-ray. <laughs> you know, yes. and I, I doubt Warner Brother will will ever release it with special features. Um, I know Mark Lester wanted to, but really, it's I think with them it's like almost hopeless. So please get the Blu-ray. You'll have a kick out of it because it's like a uh, it's like a new movie. It's it's the the best you'll you'll ever see the the, the movie like. And uh, uh, yeah. the one thing I got to give you guys both major props for and major gratitude for is um, you guys have been fully supportive of me uh, as as I've, as I've embarked on this. Uh, this is what some would say pretty silly, uh, silly project and silly venture. So uh, thank you both for all your support. Ah, oh, you're welcome. I'm hey, glad to do it. You're welcome. And, and it's, uh, you know, if we're not supporting you, who will, you know? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just... Uh, and hopefully, like, like I told you before, I think with uh, uh, give it time and and it it should pick up. Uh, yeah. I hope it will pick up, and and I'll definitely post that one on the 
on my Punisher socials. And, well, um, you know, I, I hope people will find it, you know, with time and as, as we progress. Um, so. Right on. Right you know, well, great, hey, cool. great, great job. I mean, you know, your dedication is, is yours. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, hey, uh, both of you, again, last time I'll say it, but thank you guys so much for coming back. I had a blast of a time. And to everyone out there who is listening, as always, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews and the shout outs. And I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.